HP says only 24% of workers are happy at their jobs. We take a deep dive into HP's brand new relationship index. All that and more next on this Aviation special. It's Tim Albright with Aviation with an Aviation special looking at the relationship with work. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, a study that HP did uh, in a moment, but first and foremost, uh, from HP, uh, Mr. David Danto. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you, Tim. Also, uh, we have uh, somebody who is smarter than both David and I, uh, Dr. Tr Tracy Brower. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Published author, wonderful Published book, everything. author. <laughs> you. Uh, you can find her articles everywhere, including Forbes. You can check out her books. Yeah, like I said, smarter than both of us. And she has a PhD. Um, so, David, we're going to start with, with you because it's, it's HP's uh, uh, um, report. The title of the report is, is um, you know, HP Relationship Index. Uh, it shows the majority of, of people worldwide have a unhealthy relationship with work. Uh, this is coming after, obviously, after the pandemic. One of the things that uh, the study found that only 27% of knowledge workers have a healthy relationship with work. Uh, the study also identified six drivers of a healthy work relationship: fulfillment, including uh, relationship, including fulfillment, leadership, uh, people centricity, uh, skills, tools, and the workplace. So, Mr. Danto, we'll start with you on this. What is you know, when you look at this, what are some of the biggest challenges that employees are facing when it comes to their relationship with work? Well, I'll, I'll answer your question in just a moment, but let me just uh, clarify that the name is uh, the HP Work Relationship Index. Thank you. Um, it's um, it's absolutely free to anybody. There's a website for it, hp.com slash WRI. We're not even asking for emails. The, the information is there. It was uh, over 15,000 people surveyed in 12 countries to really get a sense of what this is. So this is a very broad understanding of what's going on. And we had been seeing, as you had been seeing, a lot of uh, uh, noise, noise floor, articles, posts about where you work, you know, whether you're home, whether you're remote, whether you're in the office, going, returning to the office, not returning to the office, protests, all the rest of it. And, and it really dawned on us that what we need to understand is the why of work. What's really going on? So when we did this research, as you pointed out, the results were just stunning. Yeah. Uh, the idea that there's definitely been a change in people's mindsets throughout the pandemic over the last three years. People now have greater expectations of work. This cuts across all the cultures that we, we went through, all levels within organizations. You know, we're talking about knowledge workers, IT decision makers, and leaders all say, look, this has changed and we have to change with it right now. Um, and and the, the fear is that if we don't change, the costs are going to be enormous. The costs for business, you know, loss of productivity and, you know, loss of employees and, you know, retention and, and, and recruitment and all the rest of that. The loss to the individual, we, we came out in the survey that, you know, people are, are getting personally affected by this. Yeah. That, you know, they're, they're not as, as, as good of parents, they're not as good a, in their relationship, they're having, you know, mental health crises and, and, and physical issues, they're not eating as well, they're not exercising. So if we don't do something about this now, the cost is just tremendous. And that was a really amazing universal to see across all these different cultures. Tracy, then, then hard question here, but I'll start with you. How do we change? I mean, this is something that it, it almost feels societal, right? where, you know, David's talking about moving from where we work and that whole conversation coming out of COVID 
to our relationship with work? How do we change, you know, our relationship with work? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I love this study. It's incredible. The number of people, the number of countries, the insights that come from it. I've written a few articles where I've referenced it. So thank you. Thank you for the study, David. Super appreciated. And thanks to HP. Um, I think we need to change. First of all, I think it's really helpful that we have a new level of sort of consciousness and focus. And I think we need to take that in, into an intentionality in terms of how we lead and how we create cultures that create the conditions for people. And so when we look at really great cultures, they have a few characteristics. One is clear leadership, direction, mission, vision. Another is systems for involvement and participation and people to have a voice. Another is clear swim lanes and ways that we process conflict and challenge. And a third is adaptability, how we learn, how we listen to the market, how we listen to customers, um, how we listen to competitors. That's super shorthand. But ultimately, I think it's about us being intentional about the work experience we create, the leadership we provide, the development we give people, and the ways that we empower them within the culture. So we can dig into all those things, but intentionality toward all of it is a really first step. Yeah. And Tim, I'll point out to you one of the things that we share in a background in, in, you know, in the AV and the collaboration space for, for decades, we've always known that if you're going to roll out a, a, a UI, a control system, a touch panel system in, a, in, a, in an enterprise, if you don't involve the end users, it's going to be a failure. Doesn't yeah. know, it doesn't matter how good it is. And it's interesting, we come back to this report and one of the key, one of the six key drivers is exactly the same thing. People want a voice in what's going on. They want a voice in what tools are being selected for them. They want a voice in, in where they work and how they work and you know who their leaders are and how the leadership takes place and what's going on in terms of fulfillment and society and, and sustainability and ESG. And people want a voice. They don't necessarily have to have their way, but they need to have a realization that they've been heard, that there's a genuine relationship that what they're thinking about is cared about. And without that, it's very difficult to have this type of meaningful relationship with your job. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, um, I was re-looking at all the stats from the report, particularly the ones that I talked about in a recent article on purpose and how it's plummeted. 24% of people in your index said they felt like they had a voice in terms of the vision and the purpose of the organization. And they don't necessarily need a vote, but they need a voice. And I think this is so related to the concepts of control and autonomy. When people have higher levels of control, when people have higher levels of autonomy, that absolutely contributes to their happiness, but also mental health. And I love your point, David, like they don't have to have control over everything. They don't have to have a voice in everything, but they need to know that they've been involved. And that is a fundamental way that we value people right? Like I value your brain. I value your point of view. I value that you have expertise and your responsibilities in your job. And those are the reasons that I want your voice. Well, and there, there's one of the key points of, of self-actualization, not to get way far off, off here, <laughs> but it's control. It's having control over, you know, having autonomy over your space, having autonomy over, over your life. David, you said something there though about, you know, this is going to have an impact on employees and, and having that ha having been heard and you know over the 30 plus years i've been in the workforce it feels it feels like you know every generation we we always you know complain about the one coming up behind us and and 
for a minute it was millennials. Well, now millennials are in their 30s and, 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 and early 40s. So now we're complaining about the Gen Zers and, and this, that, and the other. Is this a generational divide where suddenly we want to be heard or is it suddenly or, or or is it that there is a mass of people regardless of generation saying hey i i need to be heard to, to feel you know successful in my job yeah there's an interesting statistic around what the value of some of these things that employees are asking for is and they were asked you know would you be willing to take a pay cut and roughly how much to get some of these things and across all of the generations to some varying degree, 1% here, 2% there, but across all the generations, everyone agreed that they would be willing to take a pay cut to have more of these genuine interactions at their job. Now, I personally, I wasn't the guy who asked all the questions. We were involved in creating the surveys. Yeah. I personally don't believe anybody would ever really take a pay cut. But what I think they're saying is, if I'm going to be looking for a new job, and if the 27% figure of people that are happy are true, that's a hell of a lot of people that are already either sideways or completely looking for a new job, they're going to factor in these other qualities, the, the, the leadership, the fulfillment, the people centricity, more than the money they would be paid by a degree up to, you know, almost 15%. So I don't think it's a generational thing. I think we got into a situation where we have been working in the type of offices and the type of companies that we work in for over a century. You know, started with, you know, command and control, it started with over the factory floor, and yeah. that's where all the equipment was, and that's where all the people were, and we haven't really fundamentally had a change in that ever. And then this horrific pandemic happened with all the terrible things, and we all experienced working in a different way. We experienced using technology and working in a dispersed fashion, and a lot of people like it. They like not having to pay for the commute. They like being able to use technology and tools to do some of their job. Some people love working in an office. Some people love working for home. Most people love the mix, the flexibility, the hybrid, whatever it is. Yeah. But we've now seen there's a better way and again, leaders and decision makers and, uh, and, and knowledge workers are all saying the time for change is now. We know there are better ways to handle this. So I don't think it's generational at all. I think it's experiential of what we went through over the last three years. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like um, there's so much research on Gen Z right now. And I think we tend to over-prioritize and sometimes over-focus on the newest generation, right? Because they're the last ones that walk in the door. So we look at them and we go, oh, bright, shiny people, right? Um, and thank goodness for them. We super value them. We actually, in our um, research, found that Gen Z wants to be in the office, in some cases, even more than the other generations, because they want to build their career and have visibility. But all the generations want that connection, want that meaningful work, want to perform brilliantly. And I think the really interesting thing is if you look at what all the generations want, sometimes it's different by life stage, right? Like early career, I want that um, build my social capital. I want visibility. I want great leaders to inspire me. Mid-career, I want to be supported, to perform, right? So I can thread the needle and do all the other things. Late career, I might especially want to be part of organizational memory and leave a legacy and kind of make a difference in terms of mentoring others. But we all want learning and stretch. We want esteem from our work. We want to feel connected to our colleagues. We want a sense of purpose. And so the fundamental thing is how we're all just thinking differently at this moment about, you know, why are we working and what are we up to and how do we make that most meaningful? And you can think of this research as a baseline because we intend to do it every year. 
Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to see if we're making any progress on this journey. I speak with a lot of experts that both of you do as well um, about where are we in this future of work journey. You know, there was a survey that, that, that a number of CEOs think that, you know, we're close to the end of this crazy experiment and people will be back in the office 100% by uh, 2026. And, and, and I don't think that really hits the mark. I think what we've learned here is we're just at the beginning of trying to figure out what the future of work will be. And we're hoping that this research will help companies really understand where they can provide value at almost no cost to really improve lives, improve their productivity, improve the bottom line. It's really what we see as the future of work as a guideline. Well, Tracy, talk about that for a second, because one of the things, I mean, you, you know, we all look at technology a lot, right? And, and you know, um, the old adage, you know, if you're a hammer, you know, if you're, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail, right? But some of these things aren't technology related, right? So, so talk for a second about what employers can do to start looking at these drivers that are really impacting their employees and impacting retention or even recruitment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the really interesting thing is I absolutely believe that hybrid is here to stay. Um, and if you look, there was a really interesting um, study that was done by um, Stanford and uh, the um, University of Chicago in conjunction. And they looked at the increase in hybrid work and the increase in remote work as a mix has been increasing over time since the beginning of work. And this has accelerated that process. But the drivers of great work, the things that will engage people no matter where they're working are things like people having a sense of purpose or things like um, uh, people feeling connected to their colleagues or feeling like their work matters and they're able to perform and that we are um, aligning people as much as possible what they love to do with what they have to do. You always have things in your work that you're not gonna love, but as much as possible when we're really aligning people. Those are some of the things that drive people's work experience. And I actually know too, like when we look at the research, people want clear expectations, they want leaders they can rely on, and actually, this they want tools and technology and resources to do their work well. And our um, what I'm seeing in the research is they don't want technology for the sake of technology. They want technology that's going to help them do their job better, that's going to help them connect better, that's going to reduce the friction in their work experience. And that, I think, is the opportunity for us, is how do we make technology something that um, facilitates a great work experience and facilitates great performance um, versus being in service to the technology for the sake of it. Yeah, as a technology company, we're seeing exactly the same thing. Technology is important to the point that you want to exactly remove the digital friction, make it wherever I'm working that day, allow me to work. So, but that also involves training, making sure that it's available. And, and more than the technology, it involves the leadership. I mean, I've been saying throughout a very long career, Tim, you know how long a career I'm talking about, that, that you know, when you're, when you're young and just joining the workforce, maybe you're really excited about being part of the Fortune 50 companies, you know, and you're worried about the company name. When you're experienced in, in your career for a while, the name of the company, the prestige of the company is not nearly as important as the value of the relationship with your direct manager. That yeah. can make your life terrific because you have a relationship based on trust um, and, 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 and they're honest with you. Or it can make your life miserable if you wind up working for a manager that's just terrible. And we're, we're as a society, awful 
at training managers on A, how to manage, and B, how to manage now that flexible work is here. You know, the, I've, I've said this a million times, so I apologize if anybody's heard it before, but, but you know, I've managed 24-7 shifts, you know, at TV and radio stations. I've managed the global workforce in my career, you know, between, you know, 50 and 100 people at any given time. It's not magic. We've done it for decades, but we're not doing a good job training managers how to keep a workforce connected and coherent and valued when they're not in the chairs in the same office every day. We had this trap of management by walking around for years where people would just walk around and see, and, and that was never really a good thing, and we're finding that managers are having a hard time growing into the type of leaders they need to be if they're not seeing their people every day in the same building. And that's probably one of the biggest weaknesses that we can fix. Tracy, talk about that for a second, because one of the one of the things that I've, I've witnessed in my career is somebody who is really good at something, and I'll, I'll pick on salespeople because they're easy to pick on, right? You have somebody who is a top 10%, top 1% performer, right? Oh my gosh, they are the best salesperson. She is the, the number one salesperson in our company. Well, then she should be the head of sales. She should be the, the, the chief revenue officer. She should be the head of all sales. No, she shouldn't necessarily be, right? Because does she have the skill set to do that? Or is she more successful because she's a damn good salesperson, let her go sell and, and generate revenue? How do we take those folks who are top performers and maybe identify some key characteristics and number one, ask them if they want to be, right? The, the top person, but then how do we get them and how do we get them training short of sending them to Harvard for a Harvard MBA? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I think the really, really interesting thing about this is I, I think of this as the leadership sift. Like we've had a great sift of leadership. Like um, bec with the difficulties we've had, the water level has gone down and you can see all the rocks, right? And so the leaders who were always really great at motivating people, of holding people accountable, of um, managing to objectives and outcomes rose to the fore and everybody else had a much harder time when we've had to manage from a distance. Yeah. And so developing leaders is so critical right now. And I deeply believe that leadership has gotten harder, right? Like we have more pressure in terms of the external context. We have more um, difficulty and challenge in terms of our disagreements with each other. More people are struggling with well-being. Managers have an incredible effect on mental health for better or for worse, right? It's incredible pressure, but it, it can also make a huge difference to people. And so um, I think the thing that we can do with leaders is to really think about developing them very holistically. Like we're gonna have, have them go through some classes, um, but also we want them to learn both in conjunction with others and individually, but also let's set up mentor relationships for leaders so they can learn with others. Let's make sure that leaders have safe spaces where they can let down their hair with other leaders. At the same time, they're being authentic with their teams, but not TMI with their teams. I think the more that leaders can be embedded with their teams so they can hear what their teams are going through and provide support, that's really smart. We should be developing leaders both in terms of hard skills, but also what we think of traditionally as soft skills, right? How can they help people with adaptability? How can they support well-being? How can they offer empathy? And what is the skill of listening or asking questions or offering resources? I think we also can develop leaders by giving them um, their own support for well-being because mm. to the extent they have to support others in their well-being, 
leaders have to be on their own solid ground. And so all of those aspects of development that have to do with classroom and a thousand things not in the classroom are critically important. I think the other thing we can do is think about how we're selecting leaders. Like how do we select leaders that are great match to the culture, but also who can provide stretch for the culture, who can take us where we want to go next. You hit on something there because that it's an important point, the fact that leaders are also workers too, right? And and here's a report that says there, there are some folks that have issues with, with their work life. It, you know, that includes your, the leadership, right? And so that's a really good point about making sure that they have folks and mentors and the ability to, you know, let their hair down and invent. Absolutely. The other really interesting thing statistically is the higher leaders get in the hierarchy, the more satisfied they tend to be and the more positive they tend to be in their reports about the organization. So I think another really important thing is the kind of research that we're seeing that really gives leaders a clear sense of what people are saying. The other thing that's really interesting is the hardest job is that middle manager role, right? Because they are having to both carry the company line and be authentic with their teams and worry about all of the elements of performance. So I think especially supporting that middle management layer is a very big deal in terms of a leverage point and important for humans. And one interesting point, just as a corollary to that and to what you're saying, is that we asked the individuals that were surveyed Who's responsible for fixing this? And you would and you would expect, I, I assume you would expect, I expected that there to be a high percentage of people that are saying the company is responsible, my manager, my leader is responsible. A lot of people stepped up and said, I'm responsible. If I don't fix this, then it's not going to get fixed. So so the the the, the takeaway here, the, the, the urgent takeaway, the alarm bell that's going off is we are at a precipice that everybody recognizes, whether they admit it out loud or not, they know it needs to be fixed and they know they're responsible for fixing it. Now what we really need is the guidance and, and the empathetic leaders to come in and say, all right, we are now going to implement change and here's what that change is going to look like. Because as the future of work grows and, and dodos die off, you know, because they're no longer going to be around anymore, um, we're going to be one of the organizations that sticks around. And that's why we're, we're adapting, you know, we're, we're evolving as, as all organizations need to. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in the both and of agency and structure. Agency, we are all authors of our destiny, we're empowered, we need to be proactive. And there's wonderful um, benefits in us taking action, being proactive and taking ownership. And structure is the idea that society and companies and organizations and leaders also create the conditions that affect how we're living our lives. So um, we develop people so they can be um, positive influencers, right? We um, give them career growth opportunities so they can grow through the organization and influence in the places that mean the most to them. We um, uh, can also develop leaders, as we were saying. We can create organizational systems where people can come together in things like affinity groups. We can make sure that we're giving people meaningful tools and technology and spaces where they can do their best work. We can ask people what kind of work they want to do and align them as much as possible. So I love your point, David, like, okay, if we're at a precipice in terms of people's experience, these are some of the things, as I just mentioned, some of the pragmatic ways that we can take action that will actually make a difference for people. All right. As, as we wrap up here, David, I, Tracy, I'm going to ask you the same thing. Give me one thing. 
that somebody can walk away from this. And since, since we are responsible as much as, as the organization, what's one thing that we can do today to make this change? Well, the idea is getting up in the morning and really focusing on what your tasks are, what your role is in the organization, seeing what you do, knowing that, like in my case at HP, we are making some of the best tools and technologies that can be used by our workforce, but we're also being good for the planet. Or also, you know, being responsible ESG members of society. And I can feel good about that while I do my task because I see how it fits in. My managers and, you know, my entire management chain have made it easy for me to see how my role affects all of that. And to the extent that, that, that individuals can have that vision and see that vision, help develop it on their own, to the extent that leaders can make sure that vision is communicated with empathy, which is a difficult thing to teach. It's a good thing, to, easy to, to teach people to remember to use it, but you either have it or you don't. That empathy is very important when you're dealing with coworkers. They're people, and you have to care about them. You have to care that you all move together as a team. So those attitudes from the first thing in the morning to the end of the day, feeling trusted, feeling empowered, and feeling like you're contributing to the bigger picture really are what can help us during a day-to-day -day process. All right, Tracy, one thing? Yeah, I love that. The thing I would add, and I think that builds on your comments, David, as well, is connection, connection, connection. We know when people feel connected, um, they are absolutely more likely to be happy, performing, engaged, et cetera. And so I think we can create the conditions for connection in our organizational systems and leaders that help connect with people and leaders that help team members connect with each other. And as individuals, we can be intentional about how we connect with our colleagues. We don't have to be BFFs with every single colleague, but when we feel that embeddedness, when we feel that social identity, that contributes to mental health and contribution and performance and happiness as well. So I think that is absolutely related. And work is a fundamental place we do that, right? We don't get those connections as much in our everyday life. We order on the app, we don't talk to the barista, we get the delivery at our door, we don't talk to the checkout person. And so work ends up being a fundamental place where we feel embedded as part of something that matters. All right, thank you both so much. Mr. David Danto, how do people connect with you? Find me on LinkedIn. I'm uh, the only David Danto in the world. Actually, there's another one in Toronto who's a cousin of mine. So if you find one that's a professor in a college, that's not me. I don't do the psychology. I do all the technology. But uh, LinkedIn, or you can just email me uh, my first name, last name at hp.com. All right. Dr. Tracy Brower. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, how do people connect with you? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, you can look me up through steelcase.com, tracybrower.com, on LinkedIn. Um, reach out. I would love to hear your thoughts and uh, make connections with you all. Uh, you can also find her articles on Forbes and check out her book as well. Uh, for us, for Aviation, go by our website, aviation.tv. That's aviation.tv. Find this program and a host of others. All that and more at aviation.tv. That's aviation.tv. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is Aviation. This is Aviation.